0: Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to remind you about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop – and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now, on with the show. You've had these real
1: encroachments into personal liberty, some of which we may get returned, but I suspect a lot of which we won't. So, this is the real long-term worry, and what we have to do. Those of us who who believe that freedom is a very good thing, it's something we used to send, you know, people to die for overseas. We have to have a good hard look at everything we surrendered in this time, because sort of some of it seems normal now, and wind it back and insist we wind it back because. Otherwise, we're just to move a little bit closer to tyranny.
0: Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century – In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Nick Cater. Nick is a British-born Australian journalist and author. He has lived in Australia since 1988 and has worked across the media there, including as Deputy Editor of the Sunday Telegraph and Editor of the Weekend Australian. He is a columnist for The Australian and he is also executive director of the think tank The Menzies Research Centre. He hosts the centre's brilliant water cooler podcast. Nick wrote about his love affair with Australia in his 2013 book The Lucky Culture and the Rise of an Australian Ruling Class. So Nick, let's talk about Australia because I remember in 2020, people in the uk we were constantly being told that australia and new zealand got covid right they locked down their borders very early on they took the disease very seriously they said that no level of infection or death would be acceptable to them while us lot in britain and other parts of the world were doing it horribly wrong we were all going to die we were going to suffer for years and years and years And now you fast forward 18 months and it's an extraordinary situation because in Britain, freedom has pretty much returned. We can do anything we like uh, apart from travelling abroad, which is still complicated. Whereas in Australia, lockdown hangs like Damocles' sword over your heads all the time and you can be spirited into lockdown at a moment's notice. And I know that you currently have a pretty severe lockdown in Sydney. So you guys Mm. seem to be stuck in this uh, terrible situation, this unpredictable situation where Britain is moving forward in the right direction. So just to kick things off, how did things go so wrong for you guys?
1: Well, I might just briefly say how they went so well, Brendan. Mm. Um, So, I mean, what looked like our good fortune is now turning out to look like our bad luck, really. Mm. But essentially... You know we lock down the borders because we can, because Australia is very used to that. as you know, we have very tough border policies. you need a visa to get in here, et cetera, et cetera. and and it's always been a country that's taken quarantine seriously in terms of animal pests and things like that, and New Zealand even more. So we could do that. We also had a, a, another fantastic advantage that we had a a world class public health system which was able to respond pretty well. and also, some governments, some more of course you know it's a federation, so you 're dealing with different governments, but yeah. some of them were very good at track and trace, like from the from the go get they had the infrastructure to do it but um what 's happened is that the delta variant is uh has called them by surprise because no matter how hard you lock down you know and, and it is a hard lockdown, you land at the airport now, you are arrested. And you're put in a uh, in a bus by police under armed guards. This has gone on from the start, and you're you're taken to a quarantine hotel, uh, locked in a room. Essentially, you can't leave it for a fortnight, and that happens to everybody. I mean, our, our Tony Abbott, our twenty eighth prime minister, is currently serving time in a in a four and a half star tourist hotel. That seen better days in Sydney, that, that, that's what they do. But in the end, there's always human error, and, and, and it gets out, particularly the Delta variant, which, of course, as we know, is much more transmissible. And once it was out, once it had got to a level where, as it did very quickly, where the track and tracing uh, became not unworkable, I mean, it's okay if you've got, you know, 100 cases, but it's not if you've got 1,000 then they did the response that they've been doing since the start, which is lockdown, and and this has happened now. In, it's happening in three states, our three largest cities locked down. I've been locked down here in Sydney for four weeks, five weeks. I don't know. It all blurs into one. Um, so that that's the response, and, and, and uh, that's how we are where we are now. Uh, but the big problem for them, Brendan, is that the, this public policy for the last year and a half has not been driven by reason or rationality. Yeah. It's been driven by fear. The public are genuinely fearful of this, you know, the amount that they're telling governments to go harder in a lot of cases. And because they're fearful, because they've been told this thing is very dangerous, the government does tough things to stop it. They think it's very dangerous. And then you get it caught in this feedback loop, this sort of vortex of fear, if you like, where, where the, the politicians can no longer act rationally or sensibly because they're having to respond to the fear of the public. And, and if they said, let's open up now, even though, you know, I don't know how many cases, a thousand or so cases, not many, by British term, the, the people go, berserk. you can't do that. It's not safe. It's not safe to go outside. So it, I've really come to the conclusion, and this is really banging our heads against brick wall as a policy think tank for the last year and a half, saying, well, look, surely there's another approach or other approaches, as, as there are. They've, the government's lost control. They're, they're having to obey this mantra of fear. And also, the result of that, to take no risks whatsoever, to set a very high bar for the point at which we can open up the economy and get on with our lives.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, zero COVID and the zero COVID or the zero case strategy that Australia has adopted and various states in Australia have adopted. You, you've argued that this strategy is being enforced with fanatical zeal. And it's quite interesting because in zero, the idea of zero COVID in the UK is, is not taken very seriously. There are some zero COVID fanatics. They're subject to a lot of criticism. People uh, often say to them, this is just not realistic. This is just not possible. And in fact, it would be very destructive for society if we thought that everything had to be put on hold until COVID had been wiped away. It's just not a, a realistic prospect how much do you think that the ideology of zero covid the the fanatical uh, embrace of this idea that you can protect yourself forever from being infected by covid how much do you think that's damaging australia and leading it down this path or or do you think zero covid is something australia can do because of its isolation well,
1: of course it can't do it but look, i mean <laughs> it would, look, let's be let's be fair brendan uh, zero covid has never been official Government policy in mm. Australia. Mm. But there have been some premiers and certainly going over to New Zealand to think about us as a little isolated block down here in New, in New Zealand. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Hearn, you know, had a little <laughs> celebration when they got to zero cases, uh, you know, because that was clearly her strategy. Uh, it was not here, but it has been of some of the chief health officers who have tremendous power and tremendous influence. But it's become that by default. And I think this is a, reflects on the broader culture of our times, Brenda, not just in Australia but in the Western world, this aversion to risk, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of – nobody's prepared to put up the slightest amount of risk. And if, if there is the slightest amount of risk, then the government has to deal with it. That's where people are at. So we're in this sort of, you know, every granny's life is sacred sort of zone. We're not able to make – health choices or public policy health choices as we normally would, which is looking at the cost of a life and assessing where your resources go. From the very beginning, we weren't allowed to make that calculation. So we weren't allowed to say, for instance, that somebody who's 75 who passes away, look, it's a terrible tragedy, but they've lived a good life. And it's a lot, I mean, you know, people say this is a callous way of looking at it, but you and I know I went to two funerals last year. One was of a a, a kid in his early thirties who'd committed suicide. One was of a, a fantastic old bloke who passed away at ninety, a great friend. At which do you think people were most most shocked and mm. grieving and upset? It's common sense, but we have never been able to make those arguments. It's always been the case that every death has to be avoided, uh, and no expense should be spared in 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 in, in avoiding it.
0: I want to. Push a little bit further on this idea of Australia being separate from the world and how, how long that can last and, and, and what can be done about the culture of fear in order to make people realize that it actually, it cannot last. Because what's been talked about by numerous experts now, including in the UK, is that even vaccination, vaccination is wonderful. It obviously breaks the link between infection and death. Uh, It's estimated that the vaccination program in the UK has prevented around 70,000 deaths or thereabouts. This is an extraordinary success. But it doesn't stop the Delta variant in particular from spreading. Lots of experts are now saying most people in the world at some point will be infected with COVID in some way, that it will spread. It will hopefully be mild in the vast majority of people. In some people, it will be less mild, but it's going to spread. So, Australia is at some point, isn't it? It's going to get COVID-19. It's going to spread. That's, that's part of the way in which this disease will work. And, Do you think that Australia is prepared for that possibility that even if it does successfully roll out the vaccine and does vaccinate the entire population, which we hope it does, and sooner rather than later, even then when it opens up, this is going to happen at some level?
1: Well, it's happening. It's happening already in real terms, and nobody can do anything about it. I mean, Mm. when when this lockdown started, what, five weeks ago? We'd read a lot of the material coming out of Public Health England in particular, fantastic reports. I mean, the reports and reporting and the openness of the reporting that comes out of the British Health Authorities is a credit to them. And we we go there because there's bigger data and they're much better at providing it than here. But it was quite clear back then, right, that the Delta variant was more infectious by several times. So if you're dealing with a a cleverer enemy, if you like, that can, can jump from human to human much more easily, then your lockdown is going to have to be up to it. You're going to, your lockdown tactics to try and keep it out is going to have to be many much, many times more effective. Well, I couldn't see that that was possible because we've been doing pretty much the best that a government can do, you know, do it. So it, it was always going to get out of control, and that's what's happening. I mean, you know, you hesitate about reporting one week's figures or two weeks' figures, but it seems to be out of control or pretty much getting out of control in New South Wales, or, or certainly to a point where it's impossible to think they'd ever get back mm. to the number of cases they need to be back to by the time, you know, they can just go back to a track and trace system. So, and of course, you know, you're exactly right. And report out last week from Public Health England, which which I've looked at and studied, and I, I presume the Australian health experts have studied, and they must have the same conclusion than me. Well, if you can't guarantee the People don't spread the virus. In fact, there's very little difference in, in, in the you know, about which you're likely to catch and spread the, div- the virus if you're vaccinated. It's just you won't get sick or you're unlikely yeah. to get sick. Then it's out there anyway. So what we've done here is set a vaccination target, 80%, which is higher than the UK. Well, good luck with that. But anyway, that's where we're heading. And, and people are getting vaccinated very quickly, but they're going to have to get to the point where they say, this is the flu, right? That's, yeah. you know, we'll deal with it. It's a nasty thing. Nobody wants to catch it. It's particularly fatal for the old people, but let's get on and deal with it like we used to deal with the old-fashioned flu.
0: So that brings me to the, the point you're make, you made earlier that you touched upon in relation to a broader culture of risk aversion, a, bro- a broader culture of of believing that it's possible to eliminate all risk and believing that it's desirable to eliminate all risk. And I think both of those are highly questionable propositions. But I think one thing that we've seen across the Western world, in fact, uh, we're in a slightly different position to you guys. We were hit very hard by COVID-19. We're hopefully over the worst of it and we're getting back to normal. But one thing that has been present across the Western world's response has been this risk aversion and has been this idea that it is the government's responsibility to protect us from all forms of risk now there are very good arguments to be had about whether it is a government's responsibility to protect the population when there is a new pandemic and it's obviously a pretty bad one which was the case with covid19 when it first emerged and some people were pro-lockdown some people were critical of lockdown that's all absolutely fine but this idea that it's the government's job to eliminate all risk, even the risk of being infected by a milder form of COVID-19, which is basically the equivalent of the flu, that's the kind of thing that really has to be shaken out of people's heads, isn't it? Because Otherwise, we'll enter into a whole new era of social organisation where uh, the relationship between the state and the individual will will change radically so that we are constantly being protected rather than being trusted to make our own choices.
1: That's exactly right. And I think you're right to point out that it's a broader culture of fear. I mean, I don't think Australia in many respects is... Is any different to any mm. other Western country? At least it's just that the, because of the pattern of, of the virus and its spread, and because we've been able to keep it out for so long and, uh, and we're now so fearful as a, as a people, then, then it's, you know, it's being particularly manifest now. But that's right. It's the number one, it's the risk culture. But sort of intersecting with that is this fear factor. In a way, the, the fear escape from the lab along with those exaggerated, predictions from britain early on from the other neil ferguson as i like to call him uh and 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 we knew then that that, the people were fearful but there was never any attempt to rein that back in for the for the authorities for the health officials in particular who used to have some authority i'm not sure they have so much now to say look okay guys that's what that modeling show but actually it's less dangerous than that we still have to take precautions etc etc we particularly have to Protect the the old, the old and the vulnerable and so forth, but it's not as dangerous as we first thought. And that honesty is what's missing, and openness, and 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 the censorship uh, in mm-hmm. in the in the medical debate over this is appalling. You might want to talk about that in a minute because there's a, yeah. a shocking example of that here in Australia right now. But it's been, all the time. It's been the case of you know the nanny state. Uh, we we always feared the nanny state. Now we know what it's like when it's let off its leash. You know, you get this. This sort of smug, uh, we know better than you, uh, grinning do-gooder class <laughs> who stand up there and, and tell us what to do and won't tell us the truth. So they won't mm. tell us, for instance, in Australia that you are now, if you even if you catch it, you are much, much less likely to go to hospital or die than you were last year because we've learned how to treat it well. We've learned how to protect the elderly, et cetera, et cetera. And they won't tell you, of course, that there are other ways of dealing with this, but none of that's been said. It's just been a case of exaggerating fears and pumping them up in this sort of horrible spiral until we get to a point where I don't think anybody can control it anymore. The government certainly can't, and it's just having to take the most, most cautious option because that's the only one people will accept.
0: Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the spiked shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com. shop oh, We'll come back in a moment to the question of censorship and truth, which you touched on there, which I think are, are very closely linked. Uh, but just to quickly, just to stick with the lockdown question for a bit longer. So I wanted to ask you, uh, about what the lockdown is like. I mean, firstly, what is the lockdown like where you are uh, at the moment in Sydney? And what impact have lockdowns in Australia had? Because uh, the the impact of the lockdowns in the UK, I mean, it will take a long time to really work out what the impacts were. But the obvious impacts were, there was the economic impact, which hit working class people far harder than other classes. There was, of course, the health impact. We had we still have an extraordinary backlog of illnesses and undetected cancers and other things that went by the wayside when, when the National Health Service became the National COVID Service. Is it a similar situation in Australia? Are, are your lockdowns yeah. having those kinds of impacts? And, and is, is there pushback against those kinds of consequences?
1: Well, not, a, not much pushback. There is a bit which I'll tell you about, but you're exactly right. Anybody in Britain would now be able to imagine what lockdown is like here except of course look we shouldn't complain I mean it's it's winter and it's 20 degrees right and you can walk outside all that that lovely harbour and that but of course there's a terribly selective effect in how it affects people and some of the poorest hardest working people uh, are actually the ones who suffer most they're in temporary jobs or whatever which they just go construction workers for instance have just been Put off the job here for some reason. I don't know why, but and of course you can walk around. I, I go into the city centre um, because we have to go into our office. We have a lot of our uh, our equipment for podcasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's reasons why I have to go in, and and the place is a ghost town. And you just see, you know, all the little coffee shops shut, closed, and you know, poor guy in the Seven Eleven across the road. Really glad to see me. I'm the only one who's been in all day. So all the things you've seen in London, you've got, and it, it is just brutal in its effect on a certain kind of business while others thrive and a certain type of person usually the most, the people the most vulnerable who can least take the blow and have least mm. resources to back them up whereas of course it's been glorious for public servants it's been glorious for anybody who's worked in office i mean i have a somebody who works for new south Wales government lives in my apartment block i saw him the other day he said he hadn't been back to work in 18 months he's loving it you know uh, they're getting paid, nothing happens to their salary. So I think that that is the people who make the decisions have been the ones who've been affected worst. But I don't need to go on about this. It'll be exactly the same in the UK, I'm sure.
0: One thing that I find extraordinary, and I think this is the case in Australia too, is that the left is often at the forefront of cheering on these lockdowns, despite, well, despite two things in the Australian context. Firstly, you're very, very, very strict border controls, which the left used to lose their head about all the time, if, if the Australia uh, enacted any form of border control against illegal immigrants, for example, there would be a complete blow up about that. And of course, the lockdown's impact on the working classes in particular, in terms of job losses or economic downturn, uh, and its favorability towards those of the upper middle classes who can luxuriate at home and, and in many instances still get paid. Is it a similar dynamic there where the left is often... Flag waving for things that are pretty destructive for the kinds of people they're supposed to care about.
1: Yeah, that, that's very true here. And there is some variation. But, and of course, we have uh, what, three liberal state governments, that's conservative in your terms, and, yeah. and three Labour, and the New Zealand government's a Labour government. And there is some appreciable difference between, to some extent, anyway, but the way they've hand, handled it with, you know, Liberal state governments more sympathetic to individuals and and their right to you know go out and make a living being less less willing, so you know similar to what you 've seen in the states you know with mm. the difference between say Florida and um, Minnesota or whatever, but not not as pronounced, so there has been a difference so, but uh, it 's definitely in the debate it is the left that are, are cheering on and urging harder lockdowns and um, I think the reason for that is is just simply that they see. State control as as the way you know to run a good society. Whereas, uh, if you're on the other side in your thinking, you 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 think individuals you know generally left to do the right thing will do the right thing and and will do it by consent rather co- than coercion. It has been shocking, um, and we've spoken about this before to see the the way the police have responded. I suppose mm. I shouldn't be surprised if you give the police emergency powers. They're not shy in using them, right? So we've had all mm. the same uh, lunacy. There was an incident last year of a woman being arrested in her pajamas in her own kitchen for a Facebook post in um, in Melbourne. You know, that, that horrendous. So uh, the other the other day, my wife was telling me that the picnic police were going round uh, Lady Macquarie's chair, which is a beautiful park on the harbour, arresting people for sitting on the grass eating sandwiches. You know, so all the all the same madness, all the same heavy handedness. Uh, because that's just the police, right? And, you know, no attempt to do it by consent. It's all by coercion. And that's frightening in a way. I mean, I don't think it'll last. We're not that kind of country. But you can you get a glimpse, don't you, of how a totalitarian government gets installed.
0: Absolutely. And listening to you there, I'm getting flashbacks from a year ago or actually more than a year ago in Hyde Park and St. James's Park and seeing lines and lines and lines of police officers sweeping through the park and throwing people out people who were sitting in couples or having a picnic or sitting on their own and and uh, I'll never forget seeing a homeless man being thrown out of St. James's Park and asking the police officer where he was supposed to go and of course the police officer had no answer at all for that and uh, I had exactly the same feeling it does even now when I walk through those parks and remember what happened, you do get uh, a sense of how quickly society can be pushed into something more authoritarian, something more alien, something that I thought anyway would not happen. Uh, so just in relation to that, one more thing before we come on to the censorship question, something that you guys have, which we didn't have, you, you have the army now playing a role, actual soldiers playing a role in relation to lockdown. Can you just explain to us what is that about? Because that seems pretty extraordinary.
1: Look, it, it does. And it's something that sort of chills you a bit. But, you know, once again, I mean, the, the great thing about countries like Britain in Australia is we have such strong liberal institutions that are in place, and and no one has total power, that there are always checks and balances. So I have to say with the army, they've been brought in largely to assist the police where the police run out. They have no powers of arrest or anything like that. They simply go around and, you know, they might have a, a roadblock to check you're not going outside the area, but they can't do anything with you. So they're generally standing there with police and the police will step in if they think one of these terrible crimes is being committed. <laughs> but you know just the very thought of it just chills me mm-hmm. and and they 've been in place on state borders you know the state the states have declared basically for a hundred hundred and twenty years almost of federation this has operated like one big country, but suddenly the states have enacted these powers they never used before to close state borders so you can 't travel between states so it's like all the problems of 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 crossing a border without duty free i find but you' you you know you need a you need a <laughs> You need need a visa to go to Perth, for goodness sake. But, but they've had to use the army to sort of check, you know, set up Checkpoint Charlie on little country roads between Queensland and Sydney. It's nuts. And and, and it was never designed to happen like that. And one example is a Gold Coast airport. The border between Queensland and Sydney runs right through the the middle of the runway. <laughs> it's a big, because we were never supposed to do this. We've had towns, you know, one mm. side of the street is New South Wales, one's Queensland, a border checkpoint down the middle. It, it, it is extraordinary, but it's also the stupidity of bureaucracy, isn't it, Brendan? You would have seen it there when they're asked to do something that. Wasn't supposed to happen, and they, they do it with tremendous enthusiasm, but tremendously badly. And you you get glimpses of what you learned about the old Soviet Union, you know, where you get a factory that would just produce left boots for a year, and then realise they had a
0: problem. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's talk about something you've already touched on, which is the censorship question. And I think this has been a problem across a lot of the West over the past eighteen months, where not only have we had a pretty serious crisis but we've also had an attending idea that there are certain things you can say about it and certain things you can't say about it. And I've always held the view that freedom of speech doesn't become less important in a time of crisis, but actually becomes more important because we need to weigh up everything. We need to have it out. We need to have those discussions. So what's the climate like in relation to Australia? And I particularly want to ask you about um, Sky News Australia being thrown off YouTube for a period of time, which Mm. didn't, make much traction here in the UK. I think it should have, because that seems like a pretty extraordinary development.
1: Yeah, and and most of the censorship, uh, and certainly the worst of it, has been from Silicon Valley, you know, the tech Mm. giants. I mean, my wife, Rebecca Weiser, writes for the Spectator, Spectator Australia, and has been writing uh, a lot about alternative treatments like ivermectin and so forth and and you know examining the records and their effectiveness and she wrote a piece middle of last year maybe it was september uh, and suddenly that was she was removed from from facebook and and i i thought i'd post it and see what happened sure my my post disappeared too and i get a little warning i was extraordinary because that was just simply a it was a very solid piece in in the Australian uh, edition of the oldest English magazine in the world, right? It wasn't some weird blog, and uh, and th- that was deemed ir- irresponsible. But in the most recent case, which is really chilling, Sky News Australia, which I should tell your viewers is very different from Sky News Yo- mm. UK. It's a very solid, decent news channel uh, that that gives you the perspective you don't get elsewhere. Uh, so it's very valuable to a lot of people and it's got a, a big audience. Uh, so YouTube decided that they weren't allowed, they took them down off YouTube for a week uh, because, you know, but I think it was particularly over these questions, interviews about ivermectin largely. And that that's a real problem for Sky News Australia because their business model now is YouTube's a big part of it. You know, they get uh, 3 million views now for some of the stuff they do, which is far bigger than the ABC, but most of that comes through YouTube. So, it was appalling uh, to see that happen. I think YouTube reversed it now but made them take all sorts of stories off. Well, that's incredible. You know, YouTube's deciding what you can and cannot run. It's not the promise of the internet that we, we, we imagined 20 years ago, is it?
0: Absolutely not. It isn't. And I think um, the role that Silicon Valley has played over the past 18 months in some cases has been quite sinister. And one example, of course, is is the lab leak theory the theory, uh, of course, still unproven that the uh, virus leaked from a laboratory in Wuhan. And for a period of time, if you said that on Facebook or if you said that on other social media platforms, you would have been thrown off. You would have had your content removed and and who knows what would have happened. But then as soon as Joe Biden said, we've got to start taking all possibilities seriously, including this one, then it became OK to say it. So that interplay as well between Silicon Valley and well, the most powerful man on earth, I think, is quite sinister in terms of who's setting the agenda here and who is telling us what we're allowed to say online. Yeah. Uh, w- one other thing in relation to the culture of censorship. So there's been the Silicon Valley uh, situation. There's also been other forms of censorship. So there is the state intervention in what people are allowed to say you mentioned the woman in australia who was arrested in her pajamas for a facebook post mm. and then there is that of course there's always that informal censorship that that mob censorship that pressure on people to go along with the correct way of thinking and i know that when there was a recent anti lockdown protest in australia in sydney i think mm. there was this extraordinary pushback from twitter mobs from the opinion forming set we were essentially saying, arrest them all, shut them down, you know, lock them up. Uh, this really incredibly intolerant response. And what do, you, what do you think that culture tells us about Australia? Is it a continuation of cancel culture, or is it part of the culture of fear around COVID-19? I'd,
1: I'd put it down to fear much more. I mean, first of all, that there was a big deal. It was in Sydney. It was a huge demonstration. There were, there were thousands and thousands of people marching to town hall and it caught police completely by surprise they, they didn't think there'd be anything like it so the police didn't have the resources etc etc and it was ugly there was a case where you know photo was taken of a bloke who seemed to be punching a police horse and he was immediately arrested and i think he's still in prison but when of course when the video came out it turned that the police mm. horse was swinging its head and uh, you've you've seen all this police mm. um In that instance, i have to say the police were struggling because they were outnumbered. The following week, you should have seen it. Like, they expected another demonstration. Basically, the harbour bridge was sealed off. You couldn't go across it without passing this checkpoint. There were police cars, other police cars. You know, we live quite close to the city and we could hear these helicopters over. It was just bizarre but there was no demonstration so they were wasting their time but i i think you know the the reason for it brendan see i think the twitter mobs in this case are on the rare in a it's a rare occasion where they're on the, the side of the majority of people because we went and polled it the following week and it was pretty right. solid 83 percent of australians thought the demonstration shouldn't have occurred that they didn't have the right they didn't have a right or they didn't have a a just cause to do it. Only 17% supported them. So it's on the basis of that that I've come to the conclusion that while I'm not fearful, and I don't know a lot of people in my circle are certainly not fearful, I I think we're the ones who are out of touch here. The vast majority of Australians are scared out of their wits.
0: Okay, well that brings me nicely on to the next issue that I want to raise with you, which is the broader question about Australia and what has happened or is happening to Australia and to the Australian spirit. So Australia is your adopted country. You're originally from the UK. You are now, I now think of you as an archetypal Australian, which I mean, intend fully as a compliment. <laughs> uh, you wrote a an incredibly well-received book, The Lucky Culture, a brilliant book about uh, the culture of Australia and the origins of Australia and and, and what the Australian spirit is about, that kind of egalitarian idea the have a go idea everyone having a fair go and trusting people really to crack on with life as best as possible there's always there's been pushback against that culture for a long time which is what you've been writing about from a new australian elite which is more puritanical more intolerant more snobbish more elitist But the events of the past 18 months seem to have called into question that culture at an even more profound level. And now you have an Australia that is gripped by a culture of fear. The states are sealing themselves off from each other. Uh, You have the army on certain parts of uh, uh, your city. What what has happened to this country that you embraced so readily a few decades ago, and uh, does it worry you for the future?
1: This is the question I'm wrestling with in my head and have been ever since it started, Brendan, because uh, I came here thinking it was a, a free and easy country where you didn't need permission to do anything. You just got on and did it, and, and you had a go. You fact, you had to have a go. That's the rule here. You have to have a go. If you don't have a go, then you're a bludger, and you should have a go. All that. That's what I love about this place, and I wrote about it at length. I won't go into it now, but if people want to read my love poem to Australia, it is the lucky culture. Uh, And um, I love the country, right? I always have. And and, um, so I'm having to reconcile that with the fact that there are this nasty aspect to it or really the way it's reacted in the last 18 months, it seems out of sync with that. Mm. But, I, I, you know, and it doesn't look like the country of Crocodile Dundee anymore, does it? But... (laughs) But then Cordell Dundee is an interesting character. The only time he actually punches somebody is when um, somebody swears at a woman. Mm-hmm. So in the end, he was a conservative upholder of values who stood by the community and was going to be a good citizen. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think most people in their own way want to be good citizens. And and, and a lot of this is them saying, well, let's get out of this quickly. Let's let's just all do the right thing, get vaccinated, stop those idiots wandering around with no masks. And so I think that... At the community level it 's that, but that 's kind of gelled with this elite who just want to control everything and think everybody is stupid so Unfortunately, this is where the desires of the the community just to get through this, do things properly, be decent citizens have actually played into the hands of of the uh, you know the, the the dictators of woke uh, and that 's why I find myself on a min- in a minority of
0: 17% on this, <laughs> if judging by the polls. Spiked is producing more content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary. So, to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com slash newsletters. Just to ask you to make a prediction, which is always a fool's game, I know, but as we come out of this, I mean, it may be a while before Australia starts to come out of it, but as as we all start to come out of this... The one thing that worries me is that there will be a boost for just precisely the kind of people you've just described, which is the yeah. the nanny staters, the finger waggers, the new elites, the, the woke dictators, the people who think that it is their right and their responsibility to tell the rest of us how to behave, what to eat, what to think, what to say, and, and so on. Because when you go through a crisis as profound as this one, which in, has involved an extraordinary amount of authoritarian control and an an uh, unprecedented levels of intervention into everyday life and interventions into civil liberty, it inevitably boosts those who think that that's a desirable situation. And it can have the effect of dampening down those of us who think it's not a desirable situation and that freedom is actually the good thing. So as we come out of this, are you concerned that the kind of elites in, that you've been writing about in Australia and we've been writing about in the UK, they will be emboldened and will have a real struggle on our hands to recover some of those decent values of old.
1: Yeah, I think I think they will. I, I would say I think that the you know the, the forces of freedom or the pro freedom, pro liberty crowd here is 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 much stronger than sometimes even they think. Yeah, we're certainly much better off than New Zealand, where there's basically no dissent in any newspaper or any any reasonable size online site to the mm. the the ultra woke Jacinta Ardern, but you know we we do we do well here. We I, I think I mean we obviously could have more voices, but there are a lot of them, and and the left know that, and they struggle, and that's why they want to shut Sky News Australia down, et cetera. But I think what what has happened is that you've had these real encroachments into personal liberty some of which we may get returned but i suspect a lot of which we won't so Mm. you know now they've discovered that you know we'll happily click on a qr code to go into a shop so that we can tell the the premier where we are shopping how quickly are they going to be let those things go how quickly are they going to be just let the border controls go internally let alone externally so that you know, I can get on a plane to fly to Perth without seeking permission from their premier, you know. Mm. And I think this is this is the real long-term worry. And what we have to do, you know, that those of us who, who believe that freedom is a very good thing, it's something we used to send, you know, people to die for overseas, we have to have a good, hard look at everything we surrendered in this time because sort of some of it seems normal now and 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 wind it back and insist we wind it back because otherwise, you know, we're just to move a little bit closer to tyranny.
0: One thing that I'm concerned about in relation to the freedom question, I think you're absolutely right that the, the forces for freedom in Australia are stronger than they are in New Zealand. I think they're stronger than they are in the UK in many instances too. There's a There's a – and this is part of the culture of Australia that you've – written about and talked about, there, there has always been a a bit of a tendency to dissent or a tendency to question or a tendency to ask, who the hell does he think he is? You know, in Australia, that's, that that is a continuing trend. Mm. It's, it, there's parts, of course, there are parts of the UK where it exists too, as we saw with the wonderful, Uh, vote for Brexit, which was a very clear manifestation of that. But in Australia, it's always been a central part of that culture. One of the things that worries me, however, coming out of this for all of uh, these countries is we may see our paper civil liberties being restored, the right to protest, the right to fly from Sydney to Perth without showing a visa. And that is incredibly important that we, we have those restored. But at the same time, there could be a corrosion of the culture of freedom, so the stuff that's not written down, you know, hugging someone when you meet them, or having a conversation in the street, or just being willing to rub shoulders with large numbers of people in a pub. Are you worried that even if the laws against civil liberties are reversed, and that stuff comes back to us, that the intense culture of fear of the past 18 months might lead to a situation where we become more atomized from each other and less willing to engage, and where we might lack the self-confidence to be free citizens.
1: Yeah, well, I think atomisation has, has been a big consequence of this and will be, so we're doing more online, and we know the problem with doing stuff online now, uh, you know, we're in silos, so we don't, you know, mm-hmm. so I think, and we've noticed this, it's like, you know, the left does things now, which I sort of scratch my head and say, what? Well, it just comes out of left field because I haven't seen the conversation that's led up to it. And no yeah. doubt it's the same if you're on the other perspective. So that's that's a big problem for our civil society. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's going to be – I'm not a you know I'm not an extrovert in psychology, but there's going to be a lot of problems. We know that, that teenagers, for instance, were increasingly interacting with one another online and that was leading to all sorts of issues. Well, that's been – entrenched Uh, we're probably going to be more suspicious of people coming out although I think we might get over that quickly so there's all sorts of long-term worrying consequences and many of them have that much worse because we've pursued this extreme social distancing policy and these lockdowns and it and, and the police too that of course they've grown in powers and are they going to relinquish them uh, governments think they can do a lot more than they used to be able to do, and, and are they going to increase those? Perhaps? Probably not. So we've got a lot of work to do just regaining the ground we've lost, let alone, mm. you know, pushing forward to a more free and open and better Australia.
0: Absolutely. Okay, I want to come on to one more issue, which is related to the culture of fear that we've been talking about, which is the issue of climate change. Uh, you and I share a scepticism towards the climate change alarmists who are in the ascendant at the moment. There's a new IPCC report, Code Red for Humanity, Climate Armageddon, Hell on Earth is coming according to one oxford professor so we can all look forward to that you've written a lot about this over the years you've you've described the climate alarmists as being attached to a dialectic of catastrophe and mm. so their idea is not merely that the world will become less perfect if it warms up a little bit but that there will be no world at all so th- there really is this mm. catastrophic apocalyptic vision how bad is that in australia at the moment or or are you guys still so into the covid stuff that it hasn't hit you in quite the way it is over here at the moment
1: oh it's it's coming and yeah. of course we we've, <laughs> we've sort of kicked up the last couple of days with the IPCC uh, report uh I, I guess I guess when I've come to look at this, Brendan, the divide in this debate is not as some people say, you know, between this small bunch of climate deniers and the rest. Actually when you when you do the numbers on this, you do polling, what you find is the divide is between seventy-five to eighty percent who either don't want us to do anything or are prepared to say, well, we'll do, you know, our international commitments and we'll do them in the cheapest way possible. So we look for the cheapest way to reduce uh, emissions. We won't just go, you know, crazy over something very expensive like windmills. Most people are in that sensible camp. Then you find about 20, 25% perhaps who think we, you know, uh, they're in the catastrophe zone. We have to do everything possible. You know, it's the Greta Thunberg school of thought, right? Uh, if it is thinking, I don't know that it is. It's more panic. So <laughs> that, that's, that's what I think if we remember, that's where the debate is. Uh, and don't get, I mean, I don't get hung up over the science of it. Here I am calling it the science. Science doesn't work like that. But uh, for me, it's a question of how we respond to what there is a consensus about, and there there is a consensus about climate change, whether we respond to it in a panicked way, in a sort of headless chooks response, or whether we go about it in a rational way. And I think where we're at is there's a danger that the fear factor there is going to do exactly what it's done with COVID-19 and end up driving the politics and the policy, uh, whether we want it or not.
0: Absolutely. And the consequences of that would be pretty dire, not only for people in Australia and the UK, but for people around the world. I mean, this idea that we need to slow down economic growth or reverse economic growth and forget about industrialisation and stop digging for coal and stop doing all these things, the impact that would have on the developing world in particular, but also on working people's lives would be extraordinary. So once again, there is that sense of just an incredibly distant, aloof Mm. elite who are saying, well, let's do this and let's do this, otherwise we'll all burn to death, with no sense of what's the rational course of action, what's the sensible course of action. And of course, in Australia, this has been a discussion for a long time. Australia is often looked upon by Western Greens as one of the great sinners of the climate change era, not least because uh, Australia remains a country with where lots of people Dig for coal, dig dig for natural resources, make a good living from it, uh, uh, provide a lot of those resources to other yeah. parts of the world. So there's always been that kind of view of Australia, hasn't there? As this kind of you know the the climate change bad boy.
1: Yeah, and it's nuts because I mean look, number <laughs> number one point to recognise is that Australia's never been a really heavily industrialised country, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so we weren't allowed, we weren't able to do what most of the other OECD countries were able to do, which was just to. Outsource all our heavy industry to China. Let them wear the emissions, and we could be clean as anything and feel very good about it. We didn't have Margaret Thatcher, who had a problem with the coal miners, who shut that down. So we we didn't have that that big lift. But if you take that out of it, and this people are amazed at this when when you tell them, and they they look at you as if they don't believe you. But Australia has reduced its carbon footprint per person. More than Germany, more than Canada, mm. certainly more than New Zealand. We've, we have gone closer to beating. In fact, we beat and exceeded our K-OTO targets. We're going to beat and succeed uh, and exceed our Paris targets. We have the, I, I could go on and on. We've got the largest um, penetration of solar, uh, rooftop solar in the world. You know, you go on and on. But once again, climate, and I suppose this is a lesson of COVID. It's like climate in miniature, a debate driven by sentiment not facts, not reason. Mm. And so you can put all these facts out there and they're completely oblivious. People have made up their mind, Australia's a, 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 a climate bad boy and, and that's what it is. So I guess my plea is just restore for calmness and reason. Remember that those, the British slogan during World War Two: keep mm. calm and carry on? <laughs> that's what we
0: need here, I tell you. Right, Nick, my final question for you uh, on this issue, but maybe also looking forward to the future. You've described climate policy uh, as being like Australia's Brexit in terms of what it tells us about uh, an intellectual elite who have these grand, often very weird theories about the world. And then th- the public, the public at large, which is tends to be a pretty no nonsense, practical, level headed. Just looking for, and and of course, uh, I've spoken in Australia about Brexit. And uh, one of the questions I was asked by lots of Australians was, how do we get Brexit down here? And I think what they mean, of course, they don't mean how do we leave the European Union? What they mean is how do we get that, sen- that sense of spirit that you guys had, that sense of populist spirit, the idea that it is possible to push back against these condescending elites, it is possible to have a victory over them and to, to make a claim for ordinary people to be the governors of their own lives and their own communities. The prospect of all that kind of stuff, whether it's Brexit, whether it's Australians pushing back against climate hysteria, or whether it's all of us questioning uh, the COVID lockdown agenda. How optimistic are you that this positive pushback against those kinds of elites can continue in the next few years?
1: Well, you're only one election away from wokeness, aren't you, these days? And, and <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's going to be a very tight election here next year, federally. Mm. But, you know, our Brexit moment, if you like, was 2019 election when everybody was predicting that Scott Morrison and the Liberals were going to lose, so much so that that all the bookies paid out on a Labour victory, actually paid out on the Thursday before the election on the Saturday. Fortunately, they had to pay me out too uh, <laughs> after the Saturday result. But that w- climate was the factor, in my opinion, there. Labor had gone, you know, towards the Greens with a massive climate target, and they were put under pressure to explain what this would mean in jobs, what it would mean for the coal mining industry in Queensland. And uh, they lost massive – you know, they won, they won, you know, a couple of little inner city seats, you know, good on them. But they lost – Massively across Queensland, uh, regional New South Wales and Western Australia where people's jobs depend on these industries. But how ironic that the Labour Party, the party of the workers sided with the cause that was trying to destroy jobs. And 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 the Liberal Party, which is supposed to be, you know, the uncaring, unsympathetic country, the, the part of the Labour. So what we have here is exactly what's happening in the UK, right, with Boris and his red wall, exactly the same, uh, that that uh, Labour is losing working people. And that, in the end, is what is going to be their big challenge in getting back into power.
0: Nick Cater, thank you very
1: much. Thank you, Brendan.